You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Like nearly every race of evil alien invaders in the history of science fiction, the Sobrakai were somehow technologically advanced enough to construct huge warships capable of crossing interstellar space, and yet still not smart enough to terraform a lifeless world to suit their needs instead of going through the huge hassle of trying to conquer one that was already inhabited, especially one inhabited by billions of nuke-wielding apes who generally don't cotton to strangers being on their land. No, the Sobrakai just had to have Earth for some reason, and they were determined to kill all humans before they took possession. Luckily for us, like so many made-up evil alien invaders before them, the Sobrakai had also seemed intent on exterminating us as slowly and inefficiently as possible. Instead of just wiping out humanity with a meteor or a killer virus or a few old-fashioned long-range nuclear weapons, the squids had opted to wage a prolonged World War II-style air and ground war against us, while somehow allowing all of their advanced weapons, propulsion, and communications technology to fall into their primitive enemy's hands. <laughs> Ernest Klein is the writer of the movie Fanboys. His first novel was Ready Player One, and his new novel is Armada. Thank you for joining me, Arnie. Thank you for having me, Enric. This is such a marvelous book, and I love this. The, at the core of this uh, book is this idea that Culture shapes culture. What we're thinking about, what we entertain ourselves with, is going to change our very world. And we, our entire world, seems to be pretty interested in science fiction now, don't we? We do. Uh, you know, I used to be a big uh, fantasy uh, buff when I was uh, growing up, and I loved Tolkien and Terry Brooks and, uh, you know, sword and sorcery fantasy. But I think it was Carl Sagan and Cosmos uh, that uh, turned me uh, into a, a science fiction buff and also. Uh, spawned my love of science and my interest in science. And at some point, I stopped being able to believe in magic, uh, uh, magic that was not based on technology. Whenever I uh, think about that, I always think of uh, the Arthur C. Clarke quote, you know, any significantly advanced uh, uh, technological civilization uh, would be indistinguishable from magic. Like once your technology, like, you know, having a cell phone is magic. Uh, to Absolutely. Some but um, uh, so the, uh, at some point I needed, uh, you know, my uh, for my suspension of disbelief to work both as a reader and a writer. Uh, I needed uh, uh, my my fantasy stories to have a, a base in science, even if it's you know ridiculous and not not the not hard science, but just enough to. It, it always works better for me as a as a reader and a writer if I can uh, uh, base everything uh, on a on a bedrock of science. You know, one of the things that struck me long ago, I was talking with Kim Stanley Robinson, and he said something to me that I have never forgotten, which is that we are living in a bad science fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that, you know. Well, and it feels like we, uh, it's like, sometimes it's 2015 and it doesn't feel like 2015, you know, because we're still driving cars. We don't have flying cars, you know. It's, that's it the feels tricky... like 1975. I know, to some degree. But then when you think about the fact that we all have a handheld computer that connects us uh, to a global information network and tracks us and tracks our movements and our purchases and our personal lives, you know, uh, then that sounds like THX 1138. That sounds like, like a dystopian future, uh, you know, with everybody kind of uh, caught up in social media and uh, and living kind of a separate, you know, online life uh, as opposed to their 
current life. I often am fascinated by the way the internet is the most powerful communication tool that we've ever created in human history. It keeps us all connected uh, to all, you know, uh, to each other all around the world all the time. Uh, and yet we use it as a way to not talk to each other. You know, uh, <laughs> like you sit in a dentist's office or an airplane, those places where you used to have to make conversation with people around you and everybody is looking at their little handheld device. And because and, it's a safe place where all your friends are and all your familiar, you know, your email and everything, you know, is kind of stored in this little device and you can retreat and not have to interact with the people around you. It's almost like a social tool at parties too. Oh, I'm going to check my messages so I don't have to talk to people. And so it's a, it's an it's a anti-communication tool as well as a communication tool. It allows you to kind of get when you hold that thing in your hand, you have total control over who you're talking to. Whereas if you're talking to the person next to you, they might actually say something. To I you. know, right? <laughs> so that challenges your ideas, and you can't just you know unfriend them. <laughs> you have to deal with the uh, real life. Your your new novel uh, takes place in just the, you know the day after tomorrow, essentially, and it begins with a really interesting. Uh, scene where you have a character who's just like most kids of of teenage age. He's sitting in high school. He's immersed in video games. He plays them online all the time, and he's really quite good at them. He looks out the window and sees something from his video game. That's a very interesting premise. Talk about just, was that the first scene that came to you when you started writing this book? Uh, well, a kid staring out the classroom window and daydreaming of adventure was always, I knew would be a great line for for a book. And this, you know, for this story, because that was just my whole childhood. I felt like uh, from the time I started kindergarten to the time I graduated high school, uh, you know, I spent part of every day staring out uh, the classroom window. I grew up in Ashland, Ohio, and my high school was surrounded by cornfields on like three sides. So, you know, it felt like the town from Footloose a little bit. And just and in the 80s, you know, before the Internet, you were kind of isolated. You know, the, the outside world reached you through cable television and through the radio and through movies and, and music. But uh, you couldn't interact with those. It was like a one way feed. And uh, I felt like I was just in the middle of nowhere. And which is one of the reasons Star Wars, you know, resonated with me. I didn't realize at the time that uh, George Lucas was playing on Joseph Campbell's, you know, monomyth and the hero with a thousand faces and that whole idea of it's always like a youth in the hero's myth who longs of adventure and then you know something happens that sets them off on that adventure and like lifts them out of their day-to-day -day lives and carries them away on it and I always you know love that idea like what if something had actually happened you know like all those times I spent staring out the window wishing that a, a zombie apocalypse would break out or you know uh, the time-traveling dwarves from Time Bandits would show up or, or, or that a UFO landed like that was one of my uh, big daydreams because I was so much a child of Star Wars and 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 science fiction and, and Heinlein uh, juveniles, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, or Have Spacesuit Will Travel. So many of my daydreams were, you know, what if aliens would land? Or what if, you know, uh, and whisk me off, you know, like in Close Encounters. So that was always, I knew kind of how I wanted to start this book. This book is titled Armada, and it is a it it is also a video game within the book and this is a very interesting video game uh could you discuss the challenges of creating a video game for a book when, in a world where we're saturated with video games uh, it was it was tricky i wanted to as a result of ready player one and, and writing ready player one everyone has introduced me uh, or wants to introduce me to their virtual reality hardware that they're designing. Uh, not just the Oculus Rift guys, but so many other companies are tackling the problem of virtual reality now that um, it's going to become a reality in just a few years. And 
the uh, Oculus Rift guys gave me one of their virtual reality headsets, the Oculus DK2, which is so strange to me. Like when I wrote Ready Player One, I did not have virtual reality <laughs> goggles connected to my computer. But when I was writing Armada, I did. And, uh, and that allowed me to play some of the very first flight simulation games that use virtual reality. And it's a, in my mind, it's just a quantum leap forward in online flight simulation because throughout the whole history of video games and flight simulation, it's like one flat screen window that you uh, are looking out of the cockpit, you know, and you, but once you put on uh, virtual reality goggles, you're inside the cockpit and you can look around and look out over your wing and see your laser cannons fire and you can track planes, you know, uh, in 360 degrees. And since you're sitting in a chair, it adds that second layer of simulation and makes you really feel like you're in a cockpit and once i tried out the first few i mean all those games are about to roll out eve valkyrie and star citizen a lot of kind of it's going to be a renaissance in space combat games because people i think were tired of playing old kind of x-wing first person games where you're still just flying through a square window but now it feels like you're inside a cockpit and once i played those that was you know kind of the game i was imagining as a mashup of these games that are about to land uh, flight like already if you play microsoft flight simulator and you play it with the oculus rift you can actually learn to fly a plane and also uh, learn where all the controls are in the cockpit and everything. It's so, and that all that idea kind of went back to all the way back to 1980 and Battlezone. Now, Battlezone was a famous game for a, a number of reasons, wasn't it? Uh, what happened with Battlezone is the real kind of inciting incident that led to me uh, writing Armada, and it's why the cover of Armada is kind of green, black, white color scheme because that's the color scheme of Battlezone. And Battlezone was a really groundbreaking game when it came out in 1980. You probably remember it was like one of the first 3D vector graphic combat games, and it was a tank game, and it was so realistic and so much like a real tank that uh, people in the U.S. military who played it saw its potential as a training simulator. And in the year after it came out, in 1981, a group of U.S. Army consultants purchased the rights to Battlezone from Atari, and they uh, hired the original programmer, Ed Rotberg, to reprogram it into a prototype of a game that wasn't a game. It was a training simulator called Bradley Trainer, and that was to train uh, soldiers to operate the new Bradley fighting vehicle, this light armor tank that the uh, Army had just introduced. And I remember reading about this in 1982, before Last Starfighter, before I read Ender's Game, like reading this article about how the Army bought Battlezone and turned it into a training simulator. And like, oh, that just, uh, that idea just sparked my imagination. And it was so much like already a fantasy that I had. I mean, from the very first time I played Space Invaders in 1978, after walking out of like my second or third screening of Star Wars, I was, you know, pretending I was Luke Skywalker uh, playing Space Invaders. And the same thing in Asteroids and Defender. I later learned out, learned that all those early video games were inspired by Star Wars. All those pro programmers went and saw Star Wars and wanted to recreate the feeling of Star Wars. So this established the connection between real battle, video games, and science fiction. Kind of the early video game industry is all wrapped up in Star Wars and the effect that Star Wars had. And it was so much fun to kind of imagine that as not an accident, but on purpose. You know, Star Wars, Space Invaders, Defender, Asteroids, Battlezone, and everything that happened uh, since then uh, was not an accident, but by design to prepare our hearts and minds. And I think where the, where the uh, uh, idea from that came from is just growing up and wanting to be Luke Skywalker so badly. I was five years old when I saw Star Wars, six years old when I played Space Invaders, seven years old when I got my Atari 2600 with the game Combat. It shipped with the game Combat, me and my brother just endlessly waging digital combat against each other. And, it, you know, like even that was rudimentary 8-bit graphics, but it was a combat simulator that had been placed in every American home all around, you know, and all, not just America, but all around the world. Everybody 
uh, suddenly had a low res, you know, uh, 8-bit combat uh, simulator in their homes. And so uh, it was always, you know, a fantasy of what if this was real? Every time I think it's a, since video games are at their heart a simulation, I feel like every time you play one, it's almost a natural human instinct to think, what if this was real? And when I heard about Battlezone, you know, like, oh, wow, I knew it. You know, video games can teach you to do real things, can teach you to wage war. And, and and as a kid who grew up, like, building a Starship cockpit out of couch pillows in front of the TV, and I would pull my Atari in and play Starship or Star Master or Star Raiders and, and pretend that I was, you know, Luke Skywalker or Buck Rogers or Starbuck. And uh, and so uh, and then, you know, when I uh, a few years later, uh, the last Starfighter came out, uh, which kind of touched on the idea of a kid being trained for real star combat uh, with a video game. Uh, and it always just bugged me that there, I wanted so desperately for there to be a last Starfighter video game, but there wasn't. I found in my research that it was because the prototype cost was going to cost $25,000 per unit to make a last Starfighter video game. So they Atari abandoned it and there never was a last starter uh, Starfighter tie in until uh, like 10 years later. Uh, but I, uh, that's like, that's also like part of the conspiracy, uh, in Armada. And there's always the classic science fiction novel Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Ender's Game, I read in 1985 when it came out as a novel, but it was originally published as a short story in, in Omni magazine, I believe, mm -hmm. in 1977. Again, uh, 1977, Star Wars, Space Invaders, Ender's Game. And the thing that's kind of, uh, one of the things that's amazing about Ender's Game is how almost as soon as there were video games, as soon as they existed, Orson Scott Card saw their potential as a training tool. And part of Ender's training, in addition to the battle school, is like some rudimentary video game simulations. So uh, I loved all of that and wanted to put it into Armada. But I think the one thing that sets it apart from Last Starfighter, Ender's Game, Star Wars, and all of those is the idea of drones and using video game controls to control drones. And the way that that idea kind of came about to me is my brother is a is a major in the Marine Corps and he uh, and has been in the Marines since he was 19 and and was a for a time an explosive ordnance disposal technician and they use telepresence kind of bomb robots to go and disarm bombs from like 100 yards away. Uh, so they're not close to them uh, when they go off. Um, but the video game controls and these little suitcases that they use to control the drones uh, look like Xbox controllers, and that's on purpose. Uh, same thing with the aerial drones uh, that we use. A lot of the controls are similar to video games, and they the military does that on purpose because it lowers the learning curve for soldiers who have grown up playing video games. So your brother's experience with drones was the last element of a perfect creative storm that led you to include our current fascination and use of drone technology. The rise of drone technology is kind of what all of our military has been about in the past three or four years. I just saw they're going to make another Top Gun a movie sequel finally with Tom Cruise, and it's about Maverick being a drone pilot because that's where our military uh, is headed. And now, and so that was that idea of drones using video game consoles to control drones, married with this other idea that it, uh, had been stirring around in you know scientific journals and and websites that I read about quantum data teleportation. The idea of using Einstein's spooky action at a distance to teleport data because all you need is ones and zeros. And if you make one, you know, if you take these two particles, separate them, and you make a change to one particle, then it happens to the other uh, subatomic particle, no matter how far apart you separate them. And when I saw that, you know, and the first, I think, quantum data teleportation exp uh, experiments had not been successful. Did not the first successful experiment took place like late last year, just as I was finishing uh, Armada. They proved that you could, you know, teleport data without any lag. And if you can do that then uh, you don't have to use radio anymore. You can send a probe to Pluto and not have to wait an hour for the radio signal to get there and then get back. You can control it instantaneously. And once I had that idea, it occurred to me, 
that then you know you could f- control a starfighter on the other side of the galaxy from yeah and if you can do that then why would you you know why would aliens ever use anything but drones you know like now when i watch star wars or ender's game or the last starfighter i can watch star wars i'm like if you can make real-time holographic phone calls between planets with no <laughs> lag you can make a remote control x-wing there's no reason to send wedge and porkins and luke all down to die senselessly they could be back on you know they the the third moon of yavin controlling their x-wings remotely uh using that same technology so once i had that idea i'm like why and why would aliens why would aliens ever invade like in war of the worlds you know uh that's where they go wrong is by sending you know you know their physical bodies inside putting putting soldiers in ships and sending them down to die uh which we don't even do anymore it's not total war it's total drone war. You know, when I watch War of the Worlds or Independence Day or V, like, why would you not send drones? And why would humanity not fight them back with drones? And once I had that idea of an alien invasion with the aliens using drones and then humanity using drones to defend it, then it becomes a video game kind of war where the, the an alien invasion where the outcome is decided by the video game skills of two different civilizations. And that, you know, once I had that idea, I'm like, that's... You know, that's so much like that feeds into that uh, fantasy I've had since I was a kid of what if this was real, even more so than, you know, uh, The Last Starfighter or Ender's Game or Star Wars. So that was what set me off on wanting to to write uh, Armada. You know, one of the things I thought that I found most interesting was the the kind of this uh, contradiction at the heart of the Armada game. On one hand, it's a dystopian the Armada game, and the book, to a certain extent, is a dystopian vision of the of the world's future. Everything's gone to hell. Aliens have invaded, and humanity has to fight back, scrabbling in this you know post apocalyptic wasteland. But on the other hand, Armada has a very utopian uh, notion of humanity as being willing to join together and to fight against this terrible menace. So you have a utopian dystopia or a dystopian utopia, depending on how you want to turn it, at the heart of this novel and this vision at the heart of this book. And that's an interesting uh, contradiction in terms. It is. And then, well, that's, not, you know, maybe that speaks to my own kind of worldview because I feel, you know, sometimes like we live in, you know, a, a, a utopia wrapped in uh, within a dystopia. You know, it seems like it's so easy now to to with technology to focus on all the uh, all the things that are good or just entertain yourself all the time and to ignore all the bad things that are happening, you know, because you can now you can using, you know, social media, you can kind of pick and choose, you know, the kind of news that you want to receive and how much of the outside world uh you take in and you almost have to because the you know there's so much media and so much information coming at you all the time more than i think any one person could take in uh you have to be discerning uh and it's 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 hard to you know it's hard to stem the tie but also just a there's something about that like so much uh, for me video games uh you know have come to play an essential role in our in our modern technological civilization they started out as an entertainment but um, I think now they, because human beings are kind of uh, crafted by millions of years of evolution to be hunter-gatherers, to, you know, explore and form teams and, uh, uh, you know, uh, kick ass and collect treasures and build, you know, build civilizations. All this stuff is hardwired into us, but we don't do any of that anymore. We sit in traffic and then we go and sit in an office and we don't get to hunt and gather or or explore or do any of these things that are hardwired into us. 
uh, except when we play video games. Uh, video games feed all these hunter-gatherer instincts that we have and allow us to get all that you know old hominid uh, instinct uh, kind of out of our system. Some people do it with sports, but I think a huge part of our population does it with video games, which is just they simulate you know hunter-gatherer activities and also warfare. You know, sports, football especially, is simulated warfare. It's a ground acquisition game uh, where you invade each other's territories and get points, you know, for, you know, each invasion. Uh, and that feeds this this internal, I think, thing that we ha- the, we humans still have in us. We think we've evolved past that point, but it's all still in there. And so video games help feed that. Well, pretty soon, uh, the physical aspect of football is going to be uh, not, not allowed because it's so wrecking the people who play it. You know, at also at the heart of this, too, is some really interesting uh, video game mythology, in particular uh, the story of Polybius and, uh, and uh, Phaeton. So tell us a little bit about where that came from. And it's so strange. It was I had already, you know, I traveled through Beaverton, Oregon, did a signing at Powell's Bookstore up there on the Ready Player One book tour. And, uh, and I loved it. It was such a green, kind of idyllic place. And I had grown up watching so many movies that were kind of filmed or set in Oregon, like Stand By Me or The Goonies. It seemed kind of this idyllic, green, American place. And I remember one of the kids at the book signing uh, who lined up to get his copy of Ready Player One signed, he asked me, he's like, thanks for coming. I don't even know why you would come here, though. You know, it's such a... Uh, uh, Beaverton is like Yonsville, USA. And uh, I remember thinking, I'm like, I remember telling him like, oh, that's how I felt, you know, growing up in my town. I think no matter where you grew up, you feel like Luke Skywalker a little bit. You feel like you're trapped in the middle of nowhere and you're staring off at the binary sunset and, you know, dreaming uh, uh, of adventure. So I ended up setting the story there uh, in Beaverton. And then it wasn't until I started writing Armada that um, I remembered the... Uh, uh, Polybius uh, urban legend, which is like one of the, I think, next to the ET cartridges buried in the desert that was just proven <laughs> right. uh, 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 last year, uh, is the the uh, legend of uh, Polybius. And uh, and researching that, I found out it took place right near there, right near Beaverton, Oregon, where I'd already set my story. So it was natural to weave this uh, urban legend that I think uh, had spawned in this place called uh, an arcade, like a go-kart raceway arcade called Malibu Grand Prix, just outside of Beaverton, Oregon, and uh, and that was where the urban legend that this game, this strange game called Polybius, that was just a black cabinet with the word Polybius on it, and uh, appeared for just a few weeks uh, in some in some Portland area arcades, and then vanished. Uh, without a trace and no one ever saw the game but for the f- couple weeks that the game was there whoever played it had strange uh, uh mental reactions some kids went crazy some kids tried to attack their parents it was like one of those urban legends that uh started to spread and i heard it all the way in ohio these urban legends that started in portland uh and uh, during my research i found out these urban legends probably came from uh, a couple kids tried to set high score records uh, at this arcade in Portland, and one of them passed out from exhaustion and malnutrition and uh, was taken away in an, in an ambulance. So, and a bunch of kids watched this kid taken away, and somehow that's you know that story got conflated with uh, other stories about the game Tempest. I was a Tempest fan. I loved that game. Early versions of the game Tempest uh, cycled at a at a rate uh, that would cause epileptic seizures in some kids. So some kids would be playing Tempest and then have a seizure. And imagine being another kid in the arcade and seeing that happen. Uh, it would have a profound effect on you. You would think this video game, you know, had some effect on the kids. So those, I think, those urban legends kind of uh, uh, coalesced and were conflated into the urban legend of Polybius, this strange game that was placed in a few arcades in the Pacific Northwest. And then at night after the arcades closed, men in black would come in and 
plug in strange devices to download high scores from the machine's data banks for some nefarious government purpose. And it's such a like gamer, uh, a gamer thing to imagine or the kind of legend that would grow out of the uh, arcade culture. Somehow these games are important. You know, they're not just an amusement. The government's tracking our high scores for for some purpose. So that was so much fun to weave that into the story. And then I kind of create a sequel uh, uh, in Armada uh, to Polybius called uh, Phaeton, uh, which uh, is uh, sort of a, a, a Star Wars sit-down cockpit version of uh, Polybius that uh, maybe it was uh, meant to train early uh, uh, drone pilots. And so uh, we actually have created that game uh, for real. If you, uh, By the time uh, this airs, uh, if people go to uh, earthdefensealliance.com or uh, phaetonwasreal.com, uh, some game designer friends of mine have actually made the game, as I described it, uh, in the book for real. And uh, now you can go online and there's a global leaderboard so you can try your skills at, uh, at Phaeton. But, uh, and some people have done that with Polybius, too, tried to uh, recreate uh, the, the gameplay uh, of, Poly- of Polybius. So it was so much fun to, to weave that, uh, like a real urban legend, uh, into the story, uh, along with you know making Star Wars and The Last Starfighter and Ender's Game and Battlestar Galactica all part of this uh, conspiracy as well. I love this idea of science fiction driving a reality or using science fiction to shape our notion of reality um, because to a certain degree, I think that's happening. <laughs> I, it does. You know, well, you, I, um, I always remember seeing this story about um, uh, somebody, uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy, talking about the first time he got a cell phone a flip phone and just whenever he would take it out people would look at him and laugh he could not be anywhere you know and take out his cell phone and people would see spock pulling out a communicator you know and uh, but uh, and the creators of the cell phone credited star trek you know with helping them create those doors same with like the automatic doors of a supermarket uh, inspired by star trek uh um so like so much of uh, uh you know the satellite like arthur c clark predicted the satellite in one of his stories before they actually made uh, satellites. So I think that's part of the job of, uh, of science fiction writers is to kind of be aware of what's happening in science and, and then extrapolate where it might take us and also the effect that this technology might have on us as people, you know, uh, uh, in our day to day lives. But I think kind of that idea of of uh, using science fiction um, uh, as maybe, you know, uh, mind control propaganda it came from. I, well, I remember one part of my research uh, into you know UFO conspiracies and all of that to, to weave it into the story was this uh, recent documentary called Mirage Men uh, and it's actually like the whole movie is primarily an interview with a guy who used to do kind of counterintelligence for the U.S. government um, uh, for P- uh, to um, uh, kind of make uh, all the spy planes and things that they were um, uh, testing. Oh, uh, people would think that they're UFOs. They would encourage that because uh, not only would it help keep what they were actually doing secret, but the people you know who would uh, were filming it and stuff would all be discredited. And part of this documentary, they talk about how um, a lot of UFO conspiracy theorists believe that the U.S. government uh, uh, had an arranged meeting with uh, ambassadors from a uh, from some other. Uh, uh, alien civilization and they came down and there was like an exchange and agreements made and it was a uh, and I remember one of the guys saying well that's exactly like what happens in Close Encounters uh, and uh, one of the conspiracy theorists is yes we believe that's why they made Close Encounters was because if you make a movie about something uh, that really happened then that automatically discredits anybody who believes that it really happened if you try to say something like Close Encounters happened they're like yeah you got that idea from Close Encounters uh, so it makes it impossible for you to 
which is a brilliant idea, and I think that would work. So that was like part of the fun of, uh, you know, if it, who would believe that Star Wars and, uh, you know, Close Encounters and E.T. and The Thing and everything else is, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, programming us uh, to prepare for an alien invasion. It's this fun idea. It, well, it's also really fun to see your, your hero, Zach Lightman, who's kind of, you know, the, the, the exact geek that everybody kind of feels like they are. <laughs> and that moment when he gets picked up is just so richly satisfying as a reader to see that happen. And that must have been really fun to write. There's a lot of those moments in this book. Yet you contrast them with this tension of he doesn't quite buy this whole alien invasion scenario because there are so many things that don't make sense about it. Well, yeah, because a real like once if a real alien invasion happened tomorrow, uh, you know, science fiction fans like you and I would have all these preconceived notions and expectations about how it might go and also how it might how it shouldn't go because if it went down like. Uh, Independence Day for real, you would have all these, you know, uh, or War of the Worlds, you would have all these questions about, well, why would aliens really do that? And it makes sense for fiction. You can suspend your disbelief. But now this is uh, this is really happening. Why would aliens, you know, why would first off, why would aliens, you know, uh, travel all that way, uh, you know, just to uh, come down and mess with us uh, when they could, you know, if they wanted to wipe us out or or. Or uh, like in that passage I read, there's so many other options, you know, uh, uh, it's so and it's so difficult to travel that far across uh, interstellar space. The idea that they would, you know, that the, so many of the movie scenarios uh, that I love and have grown up loving just don't hold up to real world scrutiny. So if something like an alien invasion really did happen and the aliens were behaving like the aliens in War of the Worlds or Independence Day or V, uh uh, I would have, you know, some serious questions, both like, you know, how is this, you know, how, uh, you know, art, uh, 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 life imitates art, but not that much. Uh, so, um, uh, and, you know, and part of that's just knowing what you, knowing what I've known about, uh, about science, just a lot of, uh, you know, and conducting a World War II style ground war and, and battling ship to ship the way they do in Independence Day and Star Wars. It's visually great, but why would you do that? You know, we have, we don't even fight that way anymore against each other. Uh, with the uh, ship-to-ship combat, but I'm sure like Independence Day Two is going to have the same because it's so you know it's so much fun to watch you know F-16s fighting alien uh, spacecraft. But uh, uh, so I don't know. It, it's like a, it, it, yeah, it's it's a fun idea. And that you know, imagining a spaceship uh, would land and whisk me away. That's like you know, that's the fantasy that I had staring out the window and daydreaming. Oh, if only like a spaceship would land and take me away. Uh, you know, and that's such a fun idea and like a fantasy. I think that every kind of lonely kid or kid you know starry-eyed. Uh, a daydreamer kind of kid uh, has. So it was fun to, you know, uh, uh, write that write that fantasy into the book. You know, one of the things, too, that's interesting is that you have a really great way with prose, writing the way people actually talk now. And to, to that end, I, I'm uh, thinking about, there's one point where the character says, okay, now here's this, is this, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that is something that just, that is a phrase that would not have been in a book. It would have maybe been about a book five years ago or th- and not have even been in thing about yeah. it in the book. Well, you know, a couple of like, uh, there's a, a, a part of, uh, uh, I think one of the lines in the book was, uh, um, the kid doesn't believe this is really happening when the like a spaceship lands uh, mm-hmm. from his favorite video game in front of his school. He can't make himself believe it happens. And he references the Matrix or Vanilla Sky, uh, 
you know, uh, like maybe this is like Vanilla Sky and I'm having a lucid dream or maybe it's the Matrix and I'm, you know, this is a computer simulation but it, because it can't be real. And one of my friends said, uh, do you, a bunch of kids are going to read this. Do you want to spoil the Matrix and Vanilla Sky uh, for both of them? <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're right. Uh, but, you know, those movies have been out a while. At some point there has to be a statute of limitations on when you're going to uh, spoil. I think the spoiler alert was... Uh, about Roy Neary and Close Encounters and the main character says right. and one of the reasons he's not the biggest fan of that movie is because of how easy it is for Roy Neary to leave his family mm-hmm. uh, behind and it hits a little too close to home for him with his absent uh, father. But I didn't want to spoil uh, Close Encounters, so that, I have to throw in a spoiler alert. But yeah, the kids do talk that way. So that's what's great about uh, uh, Twitter and social media now. Even if you don't you know, spend a lot of time around teenagers, you get a really good look at how they, how they <laughs> communicate and talk with each other uh, online. And uh, the dynamic, the family dynamic in this book is—it's really important. It's critical to the book. It's the heart of the book. It's the heart of the characters, and this missing father, and you know his his good relationship with his mother, and and his you know really strong relationship with his friends, the family he cho- of his choice, so to speak. And I that must have been uh, difficult to. Uh, Bring out, I think you do a great job bringing out the sentimentality without being sentimental in the midst of all this kind of uh, fun stuff, too. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, that was, you know, the book's dedicated to my brother, who I mentioned before, who is a major in the Marine Corps. And he, uh, you know, he started out as a, a private and worked his way all the way up, you know, uh, through the non-enlisted ranks and, and then became uh, a warrant officer and then worked his way up to becoming a major. But the, through that, he was away at war a lot. And I, you know, uh, his son, my nephew... Um, uh, had to grow up with his dad kind of away for big chunks of time, five, you know, six months at a time, sometimes a year, you know, and uh, and we'd talk to him, you know, uh, over FaceTime or through, you know, Skyping, which I've found, uh, you know, through my brother and uh, his comrades, like warfare now is made that much more complicated by uh, uh, being able, the level of communication they have with their families, you know, you think it would make it better, but it actually makes it harder. These guys get shot at and blown up, and then they go home to their barracks at night, and then they can FaceTime with home, and they hear about the phone bill and the grade cards and everything that's going on back at home through this magic window. But when they log off, they're still, you know, stuck on the other side of the planet uh, 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 and unable to do anything. So it actually makes them feel more powerless and more kind of uh, isolated. And so I saw that through my brother's relationship, you know, uh, being a, you know, uh, being a guy who was away at war and my, and my nephew having to kind of grow up uh, uh, and knowing that you're, you know, it's uh, knowing your parents are away for work is one thing, but knowing they're in a war zone uh, 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 and might not come back is a whole other thing. It kind of requires a special kind of courage to so that, you know, and his, you know, and made his relationship with his mother, uh, 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 that much stronger, you know, and the whole family had to, you know, uh, uh, dynamic changes in military families when uh, one parent has to go away and be at war. So that was something that I didn't experience. I've experienced kind of secondhand through my brother and uh, and he, you know, he being uh, 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 being a lifelong soldier, he he kind of helped inspire this story. He made me feel like I could write about these subjects that were uh, just through my secondhand knowledge and my relationship with him. I, I think that um, with any of your books, one of the fun aspects of it is is just tracking through all the cultural references, all the genre references, figuring out which ones you get and which ones you don't get. And you know, it's it's as a writer when you're doing that, 
do you put those in the first thing or do you have to does it just become larded with them do you have to go back and pull them out or do you pace them uh, you know I don't uh, what I try to do is just include them in the story as they occur to me like I do in conversation with my friends that was my you know experiment with Ready Player One was to try to write in with the voice that I use when I'm talking to my friends and if my friends you know uh, make a reference to something that makes me think of Monty Python, then I will make a Monty Python reference or refer to a book or a movie or a TV show uh, that we both know. Uh, just as a matter of course, that's like a natural part of uh, the way that we converse now. You know, I don't distinguish between culture and pop culture because really, if it's not pop culture, then what is it? It's unpopular culture. And why would you make unpopular <laughs> culture references? Some people do. Uh, and it's not because they want to communicate. It's because they want to uh, uh, it's like inside baseball. They want to show, you know, that they know this obscure uh, reference. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to be exclusionary. Like, I'm just trying to use all the tools in my toolbox to tell a story. And pop culture references is, that's my culture. That's the culture that I grew up in. And science fiction, being a science fiction fan and and using all of those references to, to contact and and. 2001 or 2010 like those are just uh those references are just more you know paints in my uh uh, uh uh that i can use with my paintbrush to paint the story that i'm trying to tell and if people um that's the thing there's also no such thing as an obscure reference anymore because of the internet a lot of times uh uh, like kids who read Ready Player One taught me that. Like they weren't even alive in the 80s. And for them, they still love the story just as a straightforward, you know, treasure hunt, action adventure uh, uh, kind of story. And the pop culture references, like that's just like a built in 80s primer. If they see like a, a reference to Oingo Boingo or Duran Duran, then they'll look it up and they're watching that music video, you know, within 30 seconds. Any, any culture reference, you can immediately look it up and know everything about it. Uh, so it's, you know, uh, it's not like you're being purposely obscure. Anybody can get those references if they want, but oftentimes like you're reading a novel and if you get a reference, you do. And if you don't, you know, if it's integral to the story, sometimes you'll stop and look something up. But, uh, but I always hate it, especially with like language. I hate if I have to stop and look up a word to find out what the, you know, uh, author means. And I just, uh, like Lawrence Block uh, was one of my favorite writers. He's, and he's not a, a genre writer, but he's a mystery writer. But he writes in this propulsive kind of plain language. And you don't have to stop to parse the words. You're just so busy taking in the story. So that's that's what I try to do. And I try not to be ham-fisted with the references. I try to, you know, some people feel like they am, especially if they don't get a lot of them. But for me, it's just weaving them in the way that I would in conversation. But some people would find that, you know, talking to me also equally <laughs> frustrating. I don't know what this guy's talking about. Uh, but, uh, but you know, some people like who get what I'm saying, get what I'm saying. I find that at my book signings, everybody, I can, you know, there's no such thing. Like, I think I'm making an obscure reference, but everybody is seeing Iron Eagle. They know what I'm talking about. You know, one of the things I found really interesting as a reading experience in this book is this tension that we experience as the reader and uh, reading what the narrator uh, uh, Lightman has to say, Zach has to say about this, his doubting uh, what the you know the alien storyline? We as readers are doubting his storyline. Was it wait? So wait, is 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 Ernie playing straight with us, or is there something else going on here? So it's a really f a fun sense of tension. I think a dual layer of tension that ratchets up to a really engaging uh, level without being too much. And that's one of the big things. It's not you don't like want to skip. You want to read every bit to find out what's going on to get there. Wow, thank you so much for saying that. Well, that, I mean that always draws me into the story more if the characters in the story react in the way that I would. Exactly, I exactly. And if they also have seen the movies that I've seen or listened to the songs that I've seen and they, you know, uh, uh, it's like in a zombie apocalypse uh, movie or TV show where no one has ever seen a George Romero movie and they don't know to destroy the brain right away. They, 
have to figure out the rules of zombies all over again. Um, but I've never seen an alien invasion story where everybody has seen all the alien invasion stories that I have and are aware of all the science fiction tropes. And when they happen in reality, you know, you'd be like, well, this is just like a movie. And th that doesn't make sense because the movie didn't make sense. So why would this, you know, uh, and uh, so it's fun. Like if the and I feel like that, you know, draws me to the story more. If a, if a character asks the same questions about what's happening that I would ask and reacts the same way, then it makes it more it makes the story seem more realistic. You know, uh, too. Uh there's always this one of the great uh, aspects of this book as well is this kind of the fine line between madness and seeing your dreams come true that this things when things are going really well and you're really happy and especially for Zach because he's at that point in his life 19 to 28 or so when uh paranoid uh, schizophrenia can set in to especially to men of that age yeah. and you're wondering you know and he's wondering too am, am I really actually clinically insane especially since he's you know kind of uh uh, growing up uh, without his father around, he's kind of become a little bit obsessed with his father. The way a lot of people who grow up without a parent will become kind of fixated on that absent parent and, and maybe idealize them and imagine that they're, you know... Uh, I always loved World According to Garp when I was growing up, both the book and the film, and the way that Garp's father being absent, he imagines his, you know, fa father being this ace, you know, pilot. And then when he finds out the truth, it's really, you know, disappointing to him. But I love the idea of, like, imagining that you're, you know, that you're... Uh, dead father isn't really dead and, you know, that he was kidnapped by the FBI or became Jason Bourne or something, you know, that fantasy that a kid would have and then finding out that that's, it's even better than that, you know, it's a, uh, uh, it's really true um, uh, was, you know, a, a fun, uh, fun to weave into a, 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 you know, escape a story for a kid who, uh, you know, like you said, gets everything that he could ever want uh, happens, then you would question, is this real or am I making this up? You know, is this, uh, have I had a delusional uh, a psychic break from reality and now I'm imagining that my video game uh, is coming to life just the way that he was worried that his father had because he is kind of having gone through all of his father's old notebooks and and old Dungeons and Dragons role playing and fantasy worlds he's found this one notebook that doesn't seem that seems more like a diary that seems to describe his father's kind of intense conspiracy theory uh, that uh, that the U.S. government is somehow controlling and invented the entire video game industry and that movies like Star Wars and uh, uh, and TV shows like V are, you know, not just pop culture entertainment, but part of some sort of uh, government uh, programming. So, like, he he found this when he was younger and decided that, oh, you know, maybe my old man was nuts. And, uh, and it kind of shattered the idealized image of his father, so he puts it away until he sees this UFO. Uh, you know, uh, that it turns out to be a ship from his favorite video game. And then he's like, oh, no, the same thing is happening to me. I've inherited my, you know, father's dodgy uh, brain chemistry, and now I'm... Uh, uh, you know, the same thing is happening to me. But then it turns out that his father was right and that he's, you know, what he's seeing is real as well. I, I was happy to see Moonbase moon <laughs> Alpha <laughs> as, as many a uh, Space 1999 fans. I know, finally. You know, I, I couldn't help but play tribute to Moonbase Alpha, which really is, uh, when I went back and rewatched Moonbase Alpha, I really I realized that it was just 2001, the series. They were mm -hmm. trying to do 2001, uh, the series. And they had, I think, ripped off a lot of designs and some other, maybe even some sets from 2000. I think he destroyed all the models so they couldn't use any of those. But it felt like a very much like a 2001 uh, uh, the series and very uh, ambitious. So like I weave a lot of uh, so many like uh, fictional moon bases in science fiction and I wanted to pay tribute to my favorites, Clavius Moonbase uh, from 2001 and then Moonbase Alpha. 
Well, it was interesting, too. You brought up uh, Clavius Moonbase as being like the model for the real Moonbase in this book. Uh, I think it was last late last year, uh, Kubrick's widow was talking about NASA contacting him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, like, well, I love There's a lot of people who lo- uh, uh, actually believe that theory that mm-hmm. Kubrick helped fake the moon landings, that 2001 was just a test run. Uh, uh, and then later on, NASA called him in uh, as a consultant. And I think there's actually a film uh, made about that, about Kubrick helping fake the, the moon landings. And for years, people accused him of that uh, uh, when he was alive. But uh, so I love that idea of Stanley Kubrick. And you just when you watch documentaries or you know study Stanley Kubrick he was such a perfectionist and 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 like Steven Spielberg in a way would like call in real scientists and real you know technicians to design things as they would really work that's one of the reasons 2001 blew everybody's mind there was so much thought even into the control panels and the explosive bolts on the pods and the communication systems and all of that you know that uh, that he imagined correctly and uh, I think couldn't help but influence the designers in the space program when they you know did the Apollo missions those people had all seen 2001 and so many of them drawn to the space program because of 2001 so that's like a, one of the many ways in which science fiction you know as uh, uh, 2001 and Star Trek uh, you know they named the space shuttle the Enterprise it's obvious you know the effects that science fiction has on real uh, science and space travel. There's a real feedback loop between science and science fiction, and it, it, on both sides, the science fiction writers love the science, and the science writers and scientists love the science fiction. I know that's what's so cool. My buddy Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, you know, now he gets invited to you know NASA events and things because it's such an inspiring story. And and uh, yeah, I remember sharing as a result of uh, oh, this is crazy. I have to tell you this. As a result of Ready Player One, I became friends with this uh, uh, an actual astronaut named uh, Chell Lindgren. And uh, in about two weeks, he is going up to the International Space Station, and he asked me if he could take a copy of Ready Player One with him. Uh, wow! <laughs> uh, and uh, so I had to sign a NASA release, and he's uh, you know that's one of the things that he's. Uh, is taking up into space, and I'm hoping he'll like you know put it up next to the window and then take a picture of the Earth and Ready Player One at the same time. But that's the kind of you know uh, this this real scientist space traveler, and he was uh, in Russia getting ready to go up on the Soyuz, and I sent him the advanced reader's copy of Armada, and he just emailed me and told me that it, he enjoyed it. So if the real astronaut enjoys Armada, I'm done. You know this guy's really <laughs> going into space in two weeks, and he he got a kick out of the story. So he's in his email. He's like, by the way, I just got to see my spaceship. It's really cramped. I'm like, oh, it's so great. <laughs> well. You have actually the inside of the dust jacket has a fabulous blueprint for the spaceship. Did you did you uh, draw get to draw that or have the, some input into uh, that? Yeah, I, I hired a couple artists. Both my friend Russell Walks did the Earth Defense Alliance. That's kind of a. Uh, in the in the uh, section breaks inside the book, uh-huh. and he also did some great end paper maps uh, that uh, uh, are in the UK edition. Uh, so there's some end paper. There's actually I think going to be in later US editions as well. But yeah, the blueprint uh, is designed by an artist friend of mine uh, named Mark. Who uh, uh, I wanted, I you know I uh, I wasn't even aware that you could do two sided uh, book covers. And once and I was I saw another one uh, another book recently. Uh, that had something printed on the inside. I'm like, oh, you know, what if you could, like, I often thought of, like, the old X-Wing blueprints or, like, uh, Viper from Battlestar Galactica blueprints that I used to have up on my bedroom wall. And, went, like, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if the inside of the book cover had, like, you know, my version of the X-Wing, which is the uh, uh, the ADI-88 Interceptor, uh, the aerospace drone interceptor that the uh, that the characters uh, fly remotely. That's it, There's a blueprint of that uh, on the inside. It looks a little bit like Buck Rogers' Thunderfighter, but not exactly. You mentioned real scientists earlier that uh, how they get called into science uh, shepherd science fiction movies and uh, you call in some real scientists in your book. I know, man. I'm hoping that they're cool with that. I did not really. I didn't have the book. I finished it so close uh, to 
the publication date, I did not have time to send it to uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or uh, or Stephen Hawking or Jill Tarter or Seth Shostak uh, or uh, Dr. Michio, uh, like all the all the Michio all, Kaku, Michio yeah. Kaku. Like I couldn't, uh, I didn't have time. So, but I thought, you know, like if I was them, um, and those were all, you know, authors whose books and uh, whose work had inspired me and inspired my love of science. So I wanted to pay tribute to them. And if, you know, and there was an armistice council uh, in the book that's kind of uh, tasked by the Earth Defense Alliance to um, negotiate peace uh, uh, with these alien invaders. And I, you know, when I thought about uh, who would be on that, who would be on that team, I thought of those people and I thought, well, I could make up fake scientists. But if I, you know, why do that? Why not expose uh, the readers to these real scientists and their work and Neil deGrasse Tyson everyone knows and Stephen Hawking Stephen Hawking I couldn't resist also having Stephen Hawking be a drone pilot like using his uh, using his uh, wheelchair rig up to also he somehow even with his limited movement he's still controlling drones and kicking ass along with all the other uh, gamers of the earth so he, I, he's like such a huge inspiration to me him and his work uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson as well saw Seth Shostak uh, uh, and Jill Tarter uh, Jill Tarter served as the inspiration for Ellen Arroway uh, Jodie Foster's character in Contact She's a real SETI uh, uh, scientist. And Seth Jostak is one of uh, her co-workers. And those guys, their work with SETI has been a huge inspiration for me. So I hope they all take uh, – uh, I hope I represent them all correctly. I'm really uh, – one, you know, especially Carl Sagan. That was one thing I struggled with was including Carl Sagan in the story. But I couldn't mm-hmm. tell this story about kind of uh, science and science fiction – um, uh, from the 70s on till now without including him in some way because he's such a huge uh, influence on me and he's the one who kind of made me a skeptic and a, and a science science buff. So uh, hopefully I don't taint his legacy at all by uh, including him in, in the story. Well, you know, you just referred to something. I think that's, you know, again, at the, at the core of this book, this intertwining of science and science fiction and our culture uh, since the, the 1970s. They become more and more entwined, and they drive one another. And I think this is a really important aspect of this book, but it's also, you know, in our life. And what's what we're having now is where science is becoming kind of uh, dis- disconnected from the facts. So we have, you know, competing visions of science. There's global warming science, and there's anti-global warming <laughs> science. So this is a very interesting state we find ourselves in. It is. Well, I don't know. I don't know that any real scientists uh, question uh, global warming. I think, you know, that's the thing. Like, uh, it's almost uh, like people cherry pick scientific fact. It's like a salad bar, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's not uh, a salad. Science is not a salad bar. Like you shouldn't, you know, if you you believe in, you know, uh, um, uh, made up deities who live in the sky, like should you be able to use satellite technology to transmit those, uh, you know, kind of outdated ideas, you know, uh, because if you don't believe what science, ha- like if you don't believe what science has to say about evolution or our origins, then you shouldn't get to use science uh, <laughs> to spread your anti-science ideas. There are a lot of people on the internet and using, you know, uh, this global communication network that's built on science because science is magic that's real, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, I don't know. That's, uh, yeah, that is a, a, a quandary. We, we, uh, we pick and choose what, uh, which truths, uh, that science tells us that we want to believe. And some of them are disconcerting. The more you learn about quantum mechanics and the nature of the universe and that it could all be a really elaborate hologram, it's dis- disconcerting stuff to, to learn. I can see why some people are like, whoa, 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 let me go, let me go read Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll be reading about you in it. I know. I'm so lucky Weekly. those two guys were, wrote a really positive review of the 
uh, uh, book, and I'm you know I'm a I'm a fan. See, that's the thing. Like I love I love uh, I love it all. Like I'm fascinated by pop culture and science fiction, but also science. And I'm so it's just so surreal uh, that uh, my book is arriving the same day that we reach Pluto. Uh, is uh, uh, like so so much about the release of this, and that my second novel is coming out the same day as Harper Lee's second novel. So anybody who says I'm slow should uh, <laughs> gauge her speed compared to mine. I got my second book out a little bit faster. Well, uh, I'm I'm thinking too that uh, all these books are on their way to become movies. Where are we with uh, Ready Player One and Armada? Well, Ready Player One now has the most successful director in the history of cinema attached uh, to make it, Steven Spielberg, um, uh, which is, you know still seems surreal. That's like an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or Vanilla Sky or The Matrix. <laughs> I assume, you know, I drive a DeLorean because of him, you know, because I grew up loving Back to the Future and The Goonies. That's Steven Spielberg, like The Gremlins, not just Close Encounters and E.T. and Indiana Jones. You know, Wade, Wade, the protagonist in Ready Player One, he carries a Grail diary. Uh, you know, to try to find uh, uh, the the egg uh, because of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, because he's an Indiana Jones fan. So the guy who made all the Indiana Jones movies is now uh, going to make Ready Player One. It just seems uh, uh, surreal to me, but also you know, like perfect, you know, beyond uh, beyond a way that even I could uh, anticipate. You know, there's so many photos of Steven Spielberg back in the '80s. He had a in his Amblin offices. He had one room that was just an arcade with like eight or nine arcade machines. He's been a gamer and involved in gaming since the '80s. And uh, but he's never made a video game uh, kind of themed movie. And now for him to make, you know, for him to make that movie about virtual reality is going to change the course of human history and how fast virtual reality is adapted and how many people are drawn to it. People will go see Ready Player One uh, as a movie by Steven Spielberg and be inspired to go get into virtual reality. And then those people will end up changing, you know, the uh, the technology that we use. So because uh, it's unavoidable, his you know, everyone in the world goes and sees his movie. So that's what's really you know, and and it's very likely that Warner Brothers will make like a uh, massively multiplayer online game similar to the Oasis to roll out with a movie. So the the virtual world in the book will actually come about, you know, uh, as a and really exist as a result of the of the success of the book and the movie getting made. So uh, and it's uh, like something out of this book. I know it's it's <laughs> so surreal and still hard for me uh, to believe. But I you know I think they're going to shoot that movie uh, next year in 2016, and then it might come out in 2017. You never know. You know, lost in La Mancha, you never know what's going to happen <laughs> till it till it happens. But uh, uh, I really have high hopes. You know, uh, I just uh, and I don't even have to worry anymore. You know, it's like in the best possible uh, hands that it could be in. And Armada, uh, I'm uh, I just finished the novel and I started working on the first draft of the screenplay and then I had to stop to uh, come and uh, start my book tour. So I'm touring here behind Armada for the next uh, for the rest of this month and then in August I'm going to get back to work on uh, finishing the screenplay and I'll, hopefully I'm going to have the first draft done by. The end of the summer, you know, the uh, Universal Pictures is really excited because, uh, uh, you know, they made The Last Starfighter, but they haven't, you know, remade that because The Last Starfighter doesn't really hold up and isn't. This is, you know, they feel like this is an updated version of of Ender's Game and The Last Starfighter and Star Wars. In some ways, it's crazy to me that Armada might end up going up against Star Wars and all these Star Wars movies that are uh, – uh, coming out because Star Wars is so much a part of my DNA and what inspired me. But uh, And part of this book, too. Yeah, and part of this book, too. And, you you know, like, I, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't be the writer that I am if it wasn't for George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. That's why I make, you know, uh, make sure to thank both of them uh, at the back because those are the two guys who kind of built my whole childhood and set me on the path to becoming a writer and a, uh, and a filmmaker and a, and a 
science buff. So it's really, uh, you know, maybe I can get George Lucas to direct our, come out of retirement and direct Armada. That would make some people unhappy, but it would make me really happy. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, uh, so so I don't know. I don't. Uh, but uh, Armada uh, is a little bit behind. Uh, Ready Player One is development because uh, the script is still isn't quite done, but they're really anxious to make it uh, uh, into uh, uh, not just one film but uh, a series. Same with Ready Player One. Uh, I already, you know, uh, that's you know that's what all studios want now is a franchise. So I, you know, I'm and I have ideas for what could be uh, uh, part two and three of both these uh, stories. Both Ready, Ready Player One, I I intended them both to be standalone stories that had a genuine ending, so you finish the book and feel like. Mm-hmm. It finished, but I also wanted to leave the worlds open to tell to tell more stories and kind of a- a- expand on these worlds. So you know, but I, I can see this one definitely seems. I I would like to return to this world. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I'm going to at, at some point. I still have, uh, I think, one more original uh, uh, idea uh, for my next book uh, that I'm not sharing yet. But uh, but before I start writing, before I start writing sequels, but I'm definitely uh, open open to it. I've been speaking with Ernest Klein. His new book is Armada. Thank you for joining me, Ernest. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.